Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 9th through Saturday the 11th feature guest conductor John Storgards and violin soloist Karen Gomio. The program includes Sibelius's Paola's Daughter, Violin Concerto No. 1 by Philip Glass, and after intermission, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 3. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Philip Glass's Violin Concerto No. 1, a work lasting about 30 minutes. Philip Glass first came to Chicago in 1952 at the age of 15, arriving on the night train from his home in Baltimore. The endless patterns of the wheels on the tracks that caught his ear were already laying the groundwork for a lifetime as a composer of a new kind of music. He had been accepted into an unusual University of Chicago program that allowed students to skip their last two years of high school and begin a university education in the big city. Glass was filled with the promise of a new life. Chicago was a real city that catered to intellectuals and people with serious cultural interests in a way that Baltimore couldn't, he wrote in his 2015 memoir, Words Without Music. It was also the place that introduced him to the Cotton Club on nearby Cottage Grove, the modern jazz room in the Loop, where you could hear Stan Getz, Chet Baker, and Lee Konitz, and to writers like Saul Bellow and Nelson Algren, who were using the vernacular of the street. He eventually found his way to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra just as it was beginning to work with its new music director, Fritz Reiner, and it was playing at the peak of its powers. Glass, who had regularly attended concerts given by the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra since his childhood, now hopped the Illinois Central train from Hyde Park to Orchestra Hall on Friday afternoon to buy a cheap student ticket to the Chicago Symphony's matinee programs. He quickly saw what Reiner was up to behind his famously microscopic beat. Those tiny movements forced the players to peer at him intently, and then he would suddenly raise his arms up over his head, and the entire orchestra would go crazy. Glass was struck by Reiner's mastery of music by his countrymen Bartok and Kodai, but he also heard many of the great classics of the orchestral repertory in his Friday outings, including the symphonies and concertos that anchored Reiner's programs. It is a leap in time and idea to Glass's own symphonic output. First came the early triumphs of the Philip Glass Ensemble, and for some two decades beginning in the late 1960s, this small circle of performers remained the recipient of his newest scores, the works that first pegged him as a minimalist and linked his name with endlessly churning arpeggios and pulsing rhythms. And then came the big, luxuriously scaled operas, particularly the triptych doled out over a decade, Einstein on the Beach, Satyraha, which Lyric Opera presented in 1987, one of the first American opera houses to stage a glass opera, and Akhenaten. And increasingly, there were film scores, beginning with Gottfried Reggio's landmark Koyaniskatsi of 1982, in which Glass's music played a role as important as the visuals. By the early 1980s, there were signs that Glass was being drawn back to traditional instrumental works. First came two string quartets, the second, based on his music for Paul Schrader's film Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, and even a cadenza for Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 24. And then, in 1987, this violin concerto, the first of his works in the great classical orchestral forms. 
Glass once said that he identifies as a classicist, although his take on classicism is so individual it might be called glassicism. It is a disposition that goes back to his boyhood. When he worked in his father's music store, he began listening to Bach suites for unaccompanied cello. He's recently composed two partitas for solo cello. When he studied harmony and counterpoint with the formidable Nadia Boulanger in the mid-1960s, scores by Bach, Mozart, and Schubert, whom he once called his favorite composer, they share a birthday, reigned supreme in her Paris studio. It was Paul Zukowski, the pioneering violinist who had premiered the non-singing violin-playing role of Albert Einstein in the original production of Einstein on the Beach, who commissioned Glass to write him a concerto. For a composer steeped in thinking operatically, Glass found the concerto form more theatrical and more personal than a purely orchestral piece. As Glass worked, he kept thinking of his father, who loved the great concertos of the standard repertoire. This concerto was his way of writing something he felt his father would have liked if he had lived to hear it. Glass remembers his father, Ben Glass, who died 16 years before the concerto was finished, as a very smart, nice man who had no education in music whatsoever, but the kind of person who fills up concert halls. The violin concerto became something of a link, between Glass's operatic output and his new interest in traditional orchestral form, and between his father's music store and his own celebrated place in the music establishment. At first, the violin concerto was viewed as a curiosity and in some quarters dismissed outright as if it were a crossover stunt. Even though it was premiered in Carnegie Hall by Zukowski and Dennis Russell Davies, who had conducted the premiere of Akhenaten, it wasn't recognized at first as a legitimate addition to the standard concerto repertory. But in the years that immediately followed, it drew a large following and was performed and recorded by several important violinists, including Robert McDuffie, who commissioned Glass to write a second concerto. Glass's Violin Concerto No. 1, as it is now known, is viewed today as something of a watershed work in his long composing career. Within the next five years, Glass wrote his first symphony, quickly followed by another seven, as well as his first concertos for piano, harpsichord, and cello. And in recent years, there have been more symphonies, including number 11, which Ricardo Muti performed and recorded with the Chicago Symphony in February 2022. And there are now also nine string quartets and even a piano sonata, that most tradition-bound of forms. For his first violin concerto, Glass originally intended to write five movements, but he settled on three, not as a concession to tradition, but simply because the first two grew longer than he anticipated. The second movement, with its pure floating melody, moves over a descending bass line that repeats throughout. It is, if one is to borrow traditional labels, a passacaglia. All three movements are shot through with many of the gestures we associate with Glass's music, pulsing chords, repeating patterns, whirling arpeggios, driving rhythms, elemental harmonies. But there is great variety in Glass's so-called minimalism, a term he disavowed long ago, plus a sense of accumulating energy and hypnotic power. The melodies that rise above the shifting textures are cut from the simplest of materials and yet are utterly haunting and memorable. 
As Glass said when he began to compose the first concertos and symphonies, he had found a new subject in the great classical forms. Quote, After years of writing for theater and opera, it was a real jolt for me to drop all of the extra musical content and make the language of music and the structure unfolding in time the sole content. Words by Philip Glass and program notes by Philip Husher on Philip Glass's Violin Concerto No. 1. And now on to Sergei Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 3, a work lasting about 38 minutes. Rachmaninoff's final symphony, his third, was also on the program the last time he appeared with the Chicago Symphony in November 1941 to play his fourth piano concerto. The Orchestra Hall concert was something of a love fest. Many times during the last 32 years, he has bowed his angular bow before a wildly demonstrating audience there after a session with the piano or the baton, wrote the critic for the Chicago Daily Tribune. Yet what awaited him in the same hall last night must have moved even his well-disciplined spirit to a little rejoicing. The audience rose to its feet in his honor not once, but twice. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra gave him a brilliant fanfare. Palms pounded against enthusiastic palms at frequent intervals throughout the evening. The ovations, however, were largely for Rachmaninoff, the pianist, and he was as famous as any alive. But as a composer, he had long since been dismissed in serious music circles as sentimental, out of touch, and irrelevant. In 1941, his best-known work, the C-sharp minor prelude, was nearly 50 years old. The cornerstones of his concertizing career, his popular second and third piano concertos, had been composed just after the turn of the century. After the composer and his family escaped revolutionary Russia on December 23, 1917, he had written very little. 39 of Rachmaninoff's 45 opus numbers were finished before then. He withdrew his fourth piano concerto for revision after its disastrous early performances in 1927, and his only other major work, the variations on a theme by Corelli for solo piano, composed in 1931, left audiences cold. When restless listeners coughed, he would leave out the next variation. On one tour, he played the entire piece complete just once. At a point when Schoenberg, almost his exact contemporary, Bartok, and Stravinsky all had new things to say, Rachmaninoff was painfully aware that his music was out of step with the times. I feel like a ghost wandering in a world-grown alien, he said in 1926. I cannot cast out the old way of writing, and I cannot acquire the new. The new kind of music seems to come not from the heart, but from the head. Its composers think rather than feel. After his death, a year and a half following his last CSO appearance, the critical establishment was ready to write him off for good. As Virgil Thompson told the young playwright Edward Albee in 1948, it is really extraordinary, after all, that a composer so famous should have enjoyed so little the esteem of his fellow composers. The sacrosanct Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, in its fifth edition, concluded its dismal appraisal of his output. The enormous popular success some few of Rachmaninoff's works had in his lifetime is not likely to last, and musicians never regarded it with much favor. 
But in recent years, his star has decidedly been on the rise. Now, as Rachmaninoff always hoped, it is his music and not his piano playing that keeps his name alive. Rachmaninoff had always worried that by splitting his time between playing the piano, conducting, and composing, he had spread himself too thin. I have chased three hares, he once said. Can I be certain that I have captured one? In the end, it was his reputation as a composer that mattered most to him. In his last works, Rachmaninoff made his case for being remembered not as an old-school piano virtuoso or as a composer of romantic piano showpieces, but as a genuinely original compositional talent. Those scant six pieces composed during the last 17 years of his life include a fourth piano concerto, the Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, the symphonic dances, and this A minor symphony. At the time of its premiere in Philadelphia in 1936, Rachmaninoff's Third Symphony was dismissed as the composer's attempt to go modern, relative, that is, to his earlier works, because it clearly does not speak the language of Schoenberg or Stravinsky. Rachmaninoff wrote to a friend that both audience and critics responded sourly to the piece and later complained that he knew of only three people who liked it, the conductor, Sir Henry J. Wood, violinist Adolf Busch, and himself. In Chicago, it was politely described in the orchestra program book as frugal late Rachmaninoff, not the gorgeous flooding Rachmaninoff of the Second Symphony. Rachmaninoff was discouraged by the reception. It has been heard once in every capital in the musical world, and it has been condemned in them all, he said. But it's quite possible that in 50 years' time it will be rediscovered like Schumann's violin concerto and become a sensational success. His words have proven more insightful than the grumblings of his critics. Of Rachmaninoff's three symphonies, this is the most compact, the most closely argued, and in fact the most modern. It's the only one in three movements. Here, borrowing a design scheme he had already perfected in his concertos, he conflates elements of both slow movement and scherzo in the central section. He also incorporates two of his favorite devices, the use of a motto theme that appears at the beginning of the concerto and recurs in various disguises throughout the score, and the eventual arrival of the Dies Irae melody from the plain song Mass for the Dead. He had used it to splendid effect just two years earlier in the Paganini Rhapsody. Rachmaninoff originally had scored the opening motto for horns and trumpets, a conventional call to attention but he later reconceived it as a mysterious and tantalizing theme with solo clarinet over stopped horns and a single muted cello. It gives the entire symphony a more expectant and suspenseful point of departure. The main body of the first movement is a standard sonata form in a fast tempo launched by a long-breathed melody of remarkable flexibility and unpredictable stops and starts. Its second theme, led by the cellos, is even old-school in its grand, lavish flow. Contrary to the Chicago Review, this is the generous, flooding Rachmaninoff of the Second Symphony. The slow movement begins with the horn singing a new rendition of the motto theme to the accompaniment of the harp. What follows is a rapid, ever-surprising sequence of ideas that eventually leads into a full, triplet-driven scherzo. 
That, it turns out, is only an episode within the larger adagio, and when the slow music returns to round out the central movement, it is changed not only by Rachmaninoff's rich and imaginative rescoring, but by the haunting effect of emerging from the scherzo itself. The finale is all energy and brightness. We are now in the land of brilliant A major. After a dazzling fugal midsection, the mood darkens suddenly, though only temporarily, with the introduction of the Diesire theme. The close, however, is an extended virtuoso romp for the entire orchestra, a reminder that Rachmaninoff was still one of the grand showmen of 20th century music. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 3. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.